Today's episode of 10 Questions is supported by HelloFresh. HelloFresh creates healthy and tasty recipes and supplies all the ingredients needed to make delicious meals with a free delivery to your doorstep once a week. Ingredients are fresh and sourced from local Australian farmers and fisheries and meals take about 30 to 40 minutes to prepare. They have three main boxes, the classic box, the vegetarian box, and the new family box. If you're in Australia, use the code QUESTIONS40, that's QUESTIONS40, and HelloFresh will give you a $40 discount on your first order of a meal box. That's pretty good. Get on board by going to hellofresh.com.au and punch in the code QUESTIONS40. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. 10 Questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. So you guys wanted it, and I've delivered with today's guest. But before we go on, and this is the final time I do this, I want to remind you that there's a very small opportunity to get the remaining tickets to Agony Live in Melbourne at the Yarraville Club on December 12. It stars Lawrence Mooney, Celia Piccola, Sam Pang, and Michelle Laurie, and tickets are on sale at YarravilleLaughs.com. YarravilleLaughs.com. Get along if you can. Righto, today's guest is the extraordinary Lawrence Mooney, the person so many 10 Questions veterans name when asked who they want on their side in a battle. Lawrence is one of Australia's favourite stand-ups, but he's also a TV host, most notably from Dirty Laundry Live and the Paralympics. He's everyone's favourite radio and podcast guest. He's one of the stars of Agony, and I'm always grateful for him saying the things that others dare not think. Lawrence is a comedy animal, but he's also a deep and considered thinker, and I like to give him a platform for that where possible. And today you get deep Lawrence, you also get revealing Lawrence, you get a sense of how Strongly, Lawrence loves his family, and you get that gloriously funny Lawrence. It was the first time I've interviewed someone face-to-face for this show, and I had to pull my face away from the microphone to laugh many times. Otherwise, I would have killed your ears. So here he is, Mr. Lawrence Mooney. Lawrence Mooney, when were you most happy? I used to have a standard answer for this, which was 11 years old. Because 11 years old, I was in the final year of primary school. My brothers had gone on to high school. I was the big fish in the small pond. I rode my bike to school every day. I had a girlfriend in grade six called Tracy. And it was also pre-sexuality. Yeah. So I was, had this kingdom that was all mine and didn't have the confusion of sexuality. Although, you know psychiatrists and doctors might debate that saying well it's constantly present or it's a factor in your psyche but um yeah i look on it very fondly because i didn't want to leave that that kind of kingdom that empire yeah that arcadian dream but then i've probably been you know apart from a couple of exceptions just increasingly happy all of my life yeah i'm I'm at a period of great contentment now i think that when the hormones kick in, it really does lend itself to a bit of torment. Yeah, because the only way that the hormones and the sexuality can be satisfied is by somebody else, really. Mm. And so then you're subject to somebody else's say-so, mm. their yes or no. 
And that's no way to live your life. Basically. <laughs> um, and so, so when did you hit puberty? I was probably late into puberty. <clears throat> so I lost my virginity when I was 19. Puberty, I remember being razzed by other boys at school when we were in the showers for not having pubes. Well, I can tell you right now, Adam, I've got pubes. <laughs> and I've got heaps of them. Question two, who would you like to apologise to and why? It's a difficult one. Um, uh, you know, because... Just watching the seconds go around on the clock, thinking, fuck, how long can I put this one off for? I like it. I like the pause. Um, oh, look, I've been an asshole to a lot of people, you know, drunken shenanigans, crazy carry-on, terrible insults, even, you know, getting probably physical in a mock way, but, you know, it getting over the top, annoying people. Um, there's a great many people I'd probably like to apologise to. Just for being a dick. I hope I didn't hurt too many people's feelings. Are you an apologiser? Do you ring up the next day? Oh, I'm, I'm deeply remorseful, yes, and I am an apologiser. I'll, I'll put it off if I think I'm purely doing it to be forgiven because that's indulgent. To go, really sorry for, you know, screwing your dinner party up. Ah, oh, that's okay. Is it? Do you still love me? If I think that that's the intent, then I'll avoid it. And and I, the apology is accepted? Yes. I mean, the most recent apology was probably um, to Stephen Gates. Stephen Gates is also known as Gatesy from Tripod, and he's a very funny and talented man. We were out a night on the piss, and I was just being an absolute ass, And... Uh, I was going through this phase where I was getting pissed and getting people to slap me as hard as they could across the face. It started at the comedy festival and it grew out of all control and it was a very testosterone, macho thing to do. It's like, you can crack me, make sure you don't hit my ear or my eye, but lay one on me. Wow. And so then, you know, other people will go, right, well, I'm next. And so there was this, you know, bunch of stupid men slapping one another really hard. Wow. And uh, I was encouraging Gatesy to do it, and he wouldn't. And so I did it to him. And I not only hurt his face, but I hurt his feelings. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? So I'm sorry, Gatesy. Wait, how long ago was that? July. <laughs> You expected two years ago or three oh, years yeah, ago, I expected you? back in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> I then told a long-winded story about a rather large boy at my school who used to get all the other boys to line up at lunchtime and punch him in the stomach. And it didn't matter how strong the puncher was, no one could ever hurt him. They're very primal um, displays of strength. You know, it's classic chest-beating weird behaviour and I think to an extent it's also just out and out boredom you know you get to a point in your life where you've seen so many results and you're out and you're high or you're drinking and it's like 
I don't know what to do. Am I going to senselessly vandalise something or get someone to slap me across the head? <laughs> Question three. No, no. What is your greatest regret? Um, I do have a regret, actually, and that's... And I, I, I intend to make amends for this. Um, on my 10th anniversary to my wife, Lou... I'm going to go to her father and I'm going to say, I actually regret not asking you for Lou's hand in marriage and to observe that tradition. And probably because, you know, being just rebellious by nature, thinking, oh, what a staid and shitty old tradition and it's quite sexist that I have to ask a man for... A woman's right to be married but I think it is actually just a sign of respect mm. and I really regret not doing it but I, I'm going to I'm going to get in I'm going to take him out to a restaurant we're going to have a nice bottle of wine and I'm going to pop the question it's going to be difficult if he says no I want to rescind the marriage. I want to annul it and never see you again. Is he cool with the with the you know when you put him into routines and and stuff and comedy festivals? I think so. Yeah, I think that there's a degree of pride in there that I'm including him. Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) And also because of the nature of my comedy, he comes out looking like the alpha. Yeah. And I look like the bitch. <laughs> Moon Man, question four. What will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Perform live. I'll have to keep doing that all of my life. Yeah. But then I think that I'll need to publish too. Mm. I'll need to have one or two books with my name on the spine mm. to feel like I've done something that I wanted to do. I also want to... I think now, and I've, I've distilled it down and down and down, I want to act. I want to act more and more. Mm. So that's that. With the book, have you... You've already... You haven't I haven't written published, anything? no. No, but you've got something. I've got, a, I've got a... You know, they say everyone's got a novel in them. I have got a novel in me. It's about a, a um, self-indulgent, drug-addicted, alcoholic comedian that blows all of his chances, ruins every relationship... And turns all the people that love him uh, around and away from him. Wow. They say the first novel, Adam, is biographical. (laughs) So it's just a hyperbolous version of what I already know. I reckon, just for for a book's sake, and I probably should say this off the podcast, that you just go through all the podcasts that you've done, all the interviews you've done, and just transcribe them. There's your book. Right. There is just... You know, you put it into different chapters of themes, incidents, everything. I just think there's the such good truth. stuff out there that you've done, that you've given to people right. generously. I think maybe you should actually take a bit back. Right. Mooney's pod. That's a that's a not a bad idea. It's, yeah, yeah, I think I think it's uh, I think it's a good idea. It's a good idea. Do you know, <laughs> this is the incredibly lazy side of me. When you said that, go back through all the podcasts you've done and, and transcribe it. That's where I just heard, 
I just vagued out and went, it sounds like a lot of work. I've got a one-word answer, Dragon, which is software that you buy that just transcribes automatically. And then you just go through it. It gets used to your voice. And it gets used to how you pronounce certain words. And eventually, eventually it'll just transcribe it. Can I also get some software that will search the internet for when I speak on podcasts? Marry those two things up. Send that to a publishing house. Have them print it. And I don't have to do anything. <laughs> Mate, I, uh, I'll do it for you. I'll fucking do it as soon as I finish this. <laughs> Question five. Who is the person? What are, just the, what are just the interviews I've done with you? Jesus, I've, I don't even speak to you these days when I'm interviewing you. Question five, who is the person who most influenced you and how? That's a, a quite a difficult question. Um, I would say, you know, I think that there's people in your psyche, active characters that you're answering to. Mm. And so when you're, let's say, in a country town, you come to Margaret River and... Uh, you judge the place, but you're in a conversation with someone in your head. It's like, yeah, this is nice. I think so-and-so would like this. I think my dad would like it or my mum would like it. Or I bet Lou would love to go into that shop with me. And so they're actively there with you in conversation. Mm. And you serve those people um, in your style, what you choose to wear, where you choose to holiday, what you choose to read, because you want those people to think well of you mm. so in a way you do serve them yeah. and probably one of my greatest in influences and a man that has also educated me he's a contemporary when we went to, to high school together um, we're born one day apart uh, he lives on the west coast of Victoria he's a novelist called Gregory Day and uh, he's written three novels The Patron Saint of Eels Ron McCoy's Sea of Diamonds The Grand Hotel and a fourth book that uh, was released this year. Um, and he has been a tremendous influence on my politics and my reading and my art and the way I think. And so, yeah, um, he's probably a, a major constant. And you met him at uni? High school. High school, sorry. Yeah, so year seven. Year seven, okay. Yeah, and and in, he went to Melbourne University, but I didn't. But I pursued the friendship and so ended up you know couch surfing in uh share houses before i moved out while he was immersing himself in arts at melbourne union so i had this kind of like connection to to, to university mm. and that inner melbourne life and then ended up joining the melbourne university drama festival i, I was one of those guys that didn't go to uni but was at uni yeah, a lot yeah. <laughs> I remember those guys. That's They're great. good guys. They're good guys. Because just... they want to go to uni. Yeah. They're not at uni. And I didn't have the marks because I didn't have the application because I was probably too young to be doing high school, you know, year yeah. 12 at the age of um, 17 or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, right. Because I think you should be older at the other end. You know, I walked into prep when I was four. I turned five in my first year of prep, so. Do you think, do you think that you're maturation has come later your intellectual maturation yeah um i i feel like yeah i've grown as a person much later on and Mm. also then you're able to make those decisions for yourself too 
what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Mm. I was easily led and quite suggestible. <laughs> I, I spent some time in Sydney and sometimes I think maybe I missed my sporting calling because I didn't play rugby league and I've got the perfect body for rugby league and if I had have played it early on, I didn't mind getting my head smashed up. I was quite happy to bleed on the sporting field. I reckon rugby league would have been perfect for me. Mm. But if I was exposed to that culture where all of those proclivities are not only encouraged but in no way reprimanded, I don't think I would have been a very good bloke. I might have come through it okay, but I didn't need to be exposed to a heavy-drinking macho culture as a young man. Talking of slapping, I used to pretty much be the Melbourne Storm writer at the Herald Sun. So I used to go down there every week and interview right. the boys. And they, I was a mascot to them. And they just put me in headlocks and punched me and everything. Just For them, it was just friendly tapping. Yeah. But to me, it was like, my God, that fucking hurt. And I would walk, walk home, back to the office, bruised and battered every time. And that, mm. what is normal to them is like assault. To the normal person. Well, that slapping thing first came about at my brother's football club as the end of season uh, drink up. It's like a a Thursday night after the the first after the final Saturday. So they're down there. What would be your training and selection night? Boys were going down the club Thursday night. We're going to drink, and they were they were quite of an an evolved club. And a lot of the guys. Um, had been to uni, you know, readers. Every Thursday night they would listen to Max Crawdaddy's show on Triple R. Yeah. But, you know, it also had football club elements. And so one that final night somebody decided that that slap game was on and you could go up to anyone and slap them as hard as you could and somebody could do it to you too. But, yeah, you know, if you got out of the way. Wow. So guys were just laying these tremendous blows on one another (laughs) and some were loud and clearly hurt you know occasionally there'd be a guy with tears in his eyes yeah and it's like do not cry mate wow (laughs) well rugby league you would have been all right yeah i definitely looking at you mate definitely so um yeah in terms of the maturation i uh i came on a bit later before we went off track, Lawrence said he was most influenced by a schoolmate called Gregory Day, who's gone on to become the author of four novels, three of which Lawrence named, and the fourth and most recent being Archipelago of Souls. So I googled him, and not only is he a multi-award winning novelist, but he's also a musician and composer, and once put the poetry of W.B. Yeats to song in an album called The Black Tower. So as Lawrence says, he's no lightweight. You've watched each other have these parallel careers. It's great. Yeah, and one of the great things about Greg is he has always been quite hard on me artistically. Yeah, right. So, you know, if he thinks I'm doing something that's completely unworthy, it's like, what are you doing that for? Like, you know, when I did two years of um, morning TV on the Denise show, yeah, he wasn't that interested in that. And I would say to him, but come on, mate, I'm, you know, I've got a child, I'm trying to make a living. It's like, that's no excuse. <laughs> good on him. Yeah. Is he okay with agony? Yeah, he's enjoyed the agony oh, series. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And he, 
he comes and sees my comedy festival shows, but yeah, it's it's pretty straight up and down kind of stuff. It's great. It's yeah, great. it's great, and and those kind of people are vital because if you're surrounded by sycophants, you're yeah. gonna burn up. Oh yeah, and disappear. Question six, I think. We're at question six. When was the last time you cried, and why? Um, the last time I really cried hard, I was it was Sunday morning, and uh, my friend Kieran Carroll and I had gone to the Kino to watch Holding the Man. Oh yeah, right. And uh, Tim Conagrave's novel, which was made into a great Australian film, um, starring Ryan Cor, and it was absolutely beautiful and incredibly sad and you know you sit in an audience in a picture theater and whatever's subject whatever the subject matter is it affects you in whatever way and you're probably crying for yourself as well as what's up on the screen so when i think to myself what am i crying for i think that you know maybe i was a little bit hard on myself very early on to conform mm. to a particular way. Uh, I think, you know, in terms of sexuality, I don't know, maybe I'm not heterosexual and maybe I didn't really give myself a chance as a young man to explore yeah. that. Yeah, right. Maybe I just went pigeonhole, done. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. So, you know, we all weep for missed opportunities. How long did that stay with you, those, the, that, that, that questioning after the film? Um, that film had a profound effect on me for a while. So, yeah, you can, you know, read something that's life-changing or see something that's meant to be life-changing and forgotten about it the next day. But also the depth of their love that they were committed to one another. And um, the guy who's... Uh, the character who's going to die first from AIDS is brought home from the hospice and they make love on the bed. And that, to me, was such a beautiful expression of love Mm. and uh, deeply affecting. Yeah, it was a a fantastic film. I didn't see it. Amanda saw it and she said the same. She just loved it. Um, Question seven, what is your current state of mind? Pretty content. I went away on the weekend with uh, the series producer of Dirty Laundry Live, Peter Lawler, and Marty Sheargold. Um, and we drank a lot. So I'm just a little bit fragile mm. in terms of, you know, and that, that, that nervousness that the, the foreboding of a massive hangover gives you. Like, oh, yeah. I've somehow interfered with the time continuum and something terrible is going to happen. Yep. Because <laughs> I drank a lot. Yeah, and just waiting for it. It's like waiting for this horrible car crash. Yeah. It's like, yeah, where's, yeah, where's the meteor going to come from? Yeah. Um, so apart from that, apart from self-imposed angst, uh, pretty content That's with good. life. I'm really – I think there's a, a good um, measure for that and it's like how – uh, how forward are you looking to Christmas? Are you, are you looking to enjoy Christmas this year? Because if you're scraping financially and you're not too sure what the future holds, 
Christmas is an awful time. Of <laughs> you're <year>. right. <laughs> but if you're relaxed and you're looking forward to winding things up and a bit of a break and everything's sitting pretty, then Christmas is great. It's so true, mate. But you know the way I know you're content? The first time I ever laid eyes on you, you had blonde hair. Yeah, I think hair is a great indicator. <laughs> hair and Christmas. Hair, hair and Christmas are two vital indicators. Question eight. What do you consider your greatest achievement? I know it sounds incredibly twee to say children, um, but I do, especially my eldest daughter, Lily, is a very fair-minded, compassionate, empathetic human being, Mm. and that's fabulous. Though it's probably not my achievement, I think, you know, you are what you are when you're born, and your parents can help encourage that. Or hinder. Or hinder, yeah. Yeah, they can be a very negative influence. So, you know, I put it down to her, but I'm very happy with that. And by extension, one of my greatest achievements is the amicable breakdown of my first marriage, which is we made a resolution to one another very early on that we wouldn't descend into acrimony we'd supplant ego for the good of the child so that child can see us together for the rest of her life in different scenarios without having to do handovers in a McDonald's car park. (laughs) Wow. And it takes a lot of work to have a clear, um, healthy breakup. And and we pulled it off. So there's a couple of good contributing factors. That is, I think we both wanted out... Okay. Although, you know, there was the pain of, well, we've got this child too. Do we stay together for the good of the child? Which is a very common thing and I think quite noble, if misguided. Um, plus, there wasn't a sense of betrayal, so uh, there wasn't anyone else involved. Yep, it's good. I'd, you know, taken my pants off elsewhere a couple of times, but you know, <laughs> that was just extracurricular and... There was never an affair. No. So there was no one. No one was um, humiliated. And um, we didn't have a lot. Yeah. So there were, there were also resolutions made on, um, you know, capital that were fulfilled. And if there had been a third party or the legal fraternity involved, there wouldn't have been anything in the end. So it was all, yeah. all down to trust. And, you know, and at the end of the day, love too. It's like you've got to have respect for your fellow human being. And I was, you know, I started that relationship crazy in love with Rebecca. So Mm. I had no trouble parlaying that into being a decent person. There was one one time I raised my voice in that breakup. It's like, you know, the frustration, it got too much. And uh, I was yelling and Lily was three at the time. And she said, don't you yell at my mum. Oh, wow. And she was very clear about it. And I said, okay, Lil, I won't. Wow. It's, uh, I, I know I've seen you guys together, and I mean, just all bit briefly, and you do look like you got on well. Yeah, so, you know, Rebecca's gone on to um, repartner and have another child, and, uh, and so have I. But I think that also that is an ongoing relationship when you've broken up with somebody and you share a child. So yeah. it's not over. No. It's going into a new phase 
And one of the most important things in that new phase is to have a supportive partner yeah. that wants you to continue that relationship with the estranged parent so you can have a great relationship with the child. And so it becomes the full village press in the end. Your wife and her husband have to be in on it together. And so we, you know, dine as a foursome. We spend time in one another's houses. We have a little time together at Christmas we work at it and you know lily has four sets of grandparents and by extension i know andy's parents and so yeah it becomes the village so andy so i'm the village idiot (laughs) (laughs) were were you were you nervous when you first had to meet him obviously this man's going to be spending a lot of time with your child were you nervous about meeting him no i wasn't but it's an interesting thing that um my daughter has spent more mornings with him than she has with me. And sometimes that's just a hard stat to swallow. Yeah. Yeah, man. But he's a good guy and it's a, you know, immense relief that your child is living under the, the roof with a man who's a good guy. I mean, he's obviously going to have his part in her life and his influences. And it's just... When you think about that, it's that makes it very difficult because you're separated from your child. So that guy, that guy is living with your child, and you're not. And that, at its at its best, is difficult. At its worst, would be insane. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, question nine. Now this question is interesting because so many people have named you. In, in their side, Lawrence. Who would you want on your side in a battle, and why? Well, it's nice to be named. That's that's lovely. And uh, I've listened to some ten questions, and I've heard some of the the people who have named me. I would. Um, Sam Pang has been tremendous for me in terms of counsel. So. Let's create the scenario where I'm the general mm. and he's my most trusted advisor because Sam um, has a great calm about him. Mm. He doesn't feel rushed by anybody and regardless of their station and he doesn't get overexcited. I am prone to hysteria. <laughs> and, you know, if, we, if I was going to give polar opposites of what we're like I do everything and Sam does nothing (laughs) but that that sounds a little bit negative by that I mean I do too much and Sam does just the right amount so he's very good at counselling you know when I'm worried on a a decision that's you know out of my control it's coming from a radio station or a TV station or a casting director he's like they need you more than you need them, Larry mm. Moon. That's his little motto. He's great like that. Yeah, he's great like that. So his calm is its own reward. And he calms you. Mm. And that's, that's a pretty special thing to get from a friend. Absolutely. And when did you guys become mates? Well, we met um, through Triple R. So he was doing oh, breakfast yeah. and I would go in and do the word with Tracy Hutchison. Oh, yeah. Um, which was a show from... Nine till twelve on Tuesdays, I think it was at the time. So you crossed paths. Yeah, and uh, I would be on 
breakfast doing you know a promo for a show talking about my comedy festival show or something like that and then sam would say why don't you come along to the final show of the year we're going down to the corner hotel had a few beers and then we had what was our our seminal lunch that started our friendship i said we should go out for lunch one day it was 2006 and uh, we went to Mario's and we started with a peppermint tea. Then we moved on to red wine. And I reckon by the time Lou came to pick me up to take me to <laughs> her father's birthday, I was blind. Wow. And she said, you're not coming to my parents' place like that. And I said, oh, what's wrong? Why is wrong? And she said, no. And so Sam and I remained there. And that was the beginning of it all. It's, We've remained good friends ever since. Match committee, agony, Paralympics. Mm. God, so many things that you guys have done together. Great person to have on your side. The final question, Moon Man, what would you like your last words to be? I had a great time. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joir. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 